You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you join us again this week. And we are live back in our Austin studio, uh, joined by one of our local sports analytics, sports technology renaissance men is maybe the introduction. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a second. So even if I've overblown that, uh, you can set the record straight. But Corey Jez, welcome to the show. Hey, Thomas. Uh, Thanks for having me and super excited to do this in person in Austin. It's uh I think it's the first in-person podcast I've ever done. I know, it's a, it's a novel concept, right? Uh, but here we are in 2022, finally back in person. So, Corey, can you outline for our listeners uh, your career journey so far, your expertise, and uh, kind of bring us up to speed about uh, where, where you were at in the industry? Sure, absolutely. So, I, um, at least in sports, so I, I came out of undergrad in 2010, 2011, and... Uh, was doing some consulting, doing kind of general tech work at that point. Moneyball is coming out around the same time and everyone, a lot of people in, you know, my friends are getting interested in this space. Uh, so I joined FanDuel in 2014. Uh, they, they all run together, but joined FanDuel when that was every commercial you could see on television for a few years in the States at least and um, helped them build their internal analytics group. Of course, there's it's a big technology company, but it was, you know, half business, half sports, um, a bit of what we were doing there. But uh, my father was a college basketball coach. Uh, basketball was kind of my sport that I loved the most. Um, and when the opportunity came up to parlay that into building an analytics group at an NBA franchise, the Utah Jazz, uh, I jumped on that in 2016, joined them. I was with the Utah Jazz for four seasons um, under Dennis Lindsay and Justin Zanuck and the general managers and some of the folks still there. Uh, which was which was really awesome just to kind of see that the industry from the inside, so to speak, or at least one of the insides. And um, so built that group and then was lucky enough to come back to Austin, Texas in uh, 2000, uh, late 2020, uh, in the middle of COVID, um, to help them start Austin FC. And so I worked with them for about 18 months, built the analytics group up there. And now I'm kind of doing a little bit of everything out on my own. So um, I still work with an NBA team. I still work with an MLS team. I'm, I'm doing some stuff with the PGA Tour and um, a local PGA tour golfer who also lives here in Austin. So, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to kind of touch sports data in a lot of different ways, but really my focus now is on that sporting side, player side. There's, there's obviously, and you've, you've talked to so many great people around the business side of this. Um, but what I'm really interested in is kind of that tip of the spear. How can we use technology to win games? Yeah, well, great. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, definitely not. But this is the, the starting point that I want to have for the conversation. And uh, I follow you on Twitter and it's at Data, J-E-Z or Z, depending where you're from, um, Data, D-A-T-A. And this is a bit of a thread that you put together around how teams are winning with analytics and technology. And we'll talk about that kind of difference between analytics and technology in a bit. But this is the quote that I want to have as our launching off point. So putting together technical teams that look more like hedge funds than sports organizations is a real advantage. It's not about analytics anymore. It's about leveraging technology at every decision-making touch point for your organization. Yeah. So, so so go for it. That's that's the essay question. Well, that's that's the well, that's the point. But like, what do you mean by that in terms of who's doing it well in the industry? If if we want to think about who is actually embodying that, and then uh, the second point is around well. It's not about analytics anymore. It's about technology. Sure. So, and to give to give a little context there, that 
kind of riff and thread that I had on Twitter. And I've got a few of those around kind of sports and tech again on the sporting side of things uh, throughout my Twitter interspersed with some golf stuff. But um, it was a, it was in response to someone talking about the time they'd interviewed at the Los Angeles Dodgers and how the person that beat them out for a job was a former Google PhD and that, you know, from their interview process, it looked and felt like a hedge fund more than it did a baseball team and that other baseball teams didn't even have a clue how far behind they were, you know, and, and, um, it, it brings up a really interesting point because in most sports, certainly American sports, you have salary caps or financial fair play. And, you know, in European soccer, you have constraints on how much money you can spend. You cannot pay LeBron James a billion dollars. Um, you can only pay him about 50 million a year. And so you are essentially capped in that aspect. So what else can you do to build a competitive advantage for your group? And especially in things like baseball and American football, certainly European football at the top levels um, and, and basketball in the USA, the, the financial rewards of winning, so the TV money you get by making it to the NBA finals or the TV money you get by making it to the Super Bowl, like directly to your owner's pocket, um, you know, you, you make it to Champions League or make it in knockout rounds of Champions League. The, the sums of money are so great in terms of ROI from an ownership standpoint that there, there is no cap in what you spend on your internal resources to go develop and help those teams win. Now, analytics or technology in your sporting organization is only one of those things. There's lots of other little arms races going on all the time, like who's got the best chef and who's got all these things that maybe to recruit free agents and things like that. But to, to bring it back to the Dodgers, they employ about three dozen people um, and, and this is about the benchmark for the top teams in Major League Baseball. And, of course, Major League Baseball had Moneyball kind of before anybody else did in America, and in the world. But about three dozen people just in your technology group. And it's not just, uh, as I mentioned, it's not just data science and analytics, what we think of traditional analytics like machine learning models or data visualization. It's everything. And so it's technology across your organization. So... The Dodgers, and obviously now the Dodgers have the pockets and have the ownership groups like the Yankees do, but there's some smaller market teams that are similar in size, the Milwaukee Brewers, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, the Cleveland Indians, Cle Cleveland Guardians now are, you know, Major League Baseball teams that are maybe not 36, and I don't know the head counts, but, I, you know, I, I keep a, try to keep a good pulse on that industry, but, you know, the dozens, right, you know, of people, double-digit number of people in their technology groups, and it is all about using that at every, like I say, at every touch point of your organization. So those are those are some of kind of the classic examples. Um, Cubs are another one. Classic examples in Major League Baseball that tend to lead the way. But I, I think what the, you know, everyone has talked about now Moneyball 2.0 and Moneyball 3.0 and what are these things beyond just find undervalued players. Moneyball 1.0, which sports are still not getting right you know writ large um, outside of baseball is just find the undervalued player right the lakers let alex caruso go to the bulls for nine million dollars a year it's like alex caruso by some metrics is the best defensive player in basketball so um there, there's still moneyball 1.0 happening everywhere but 2.0 is okay well what about all this other information we have floating around our organization and how do we leverage and coalesce that into our 
ultimately our decision-making process. And that's what I think the next, you know, baseball is kind of there. And, and for me, from I've never worked in a major league baseball club. I have some friends who, who do, but, you know, I look at them as the trajectory of where I expect the rest of American sports. And again, you can use um, at least top level football in, in Europe as a, in, in that group as well. Of Where do I think that's going to go? Just because the, the return on investment is so astronomical. I mean, it's why you see venture groups and private equity groups getting into European football all the time now. Um, and we've got good anecdotes we can go into about examples there that it's worked. But yeah, so it's it's a really interesting time, I think, because it's no longer analytics in this traditional data science sense, but it's now, you know, if you go look up who works at the Dodgers or, or the Mets with Steve Cohen and his hedge fund, you know, they're bringing in web developers and DevOps and UX people, you know, the type of rosters that you're used to seeing when you look at startups, not, or hedge funds, not the types of rosters you're used to seeing in front offices. So what would it, what did it look like before in baseball? And we'll stick with baseball and then kind of look to what it looks like in other sports, but just baseball is, I guess, the gold standard or where we want to get to. What would it look like a few years ago? And then what does it look like now? Well, in terms of job roles, uh, what they're actually working on, things like that. Sure. And, and the reason that baseball kind of was the, the first to market or, or the first mover in this space, obviously, is because the sport is just more easily quantifiable for folks who aren't intimately familiar with it. It's, you know, it's much more discreet. It's, it's, you measure it more like you measure chess than you do basketball, right? In terms of it's a pitcher versus a batter and each pitch is an independent um, event. And so, um, what start, you know, the, the trajectory is basically people come in there. There's been good data in baseball for a century or so because the way we track the game hasn't fundamentally changed. Nope. And the game hasn't really fundamentally changed yeah. either in, in terms of other sports, in terms of rule changes and things like that. It's been relatively sure. um, kind of level in terms of how it is. Something like AFL um, to uh, Australian, full, uh, Australian rules football and uh, Australian Football League has rule changes that sometimes happen mid-season, which would just blow a baseball purist's mind. Uh, but, any American but sport. Yeah. Any American sport. But that, that is one end of the spectrum, and then I guess baseball sure. is the other one. Sure. And the, the way that people count the game uh, in terms of every pitch can be counted really easily has also basically... So we've ha- we, we have this century's worth, century-large data set, essentially, for someone... Um, like Bill James, who's kind of the godfather of all of this in baseball, to come in and say, okay, well, you know, RBIs don't really matter because... Runs batted in. Runs batted in, which is an old school traditional metric of batter performance. Because if I hit a single, I can't help whether or not there's a player on third or there's nobody on any base. I hit the single. I should be evaluated by how well I hit the single, right? You know, batting average being the classic one of, you know, there's much better ways we can measure, hey, you know, I used this example the other day with someone. If you could hit really, if you could hit the ball really hard every time, but ten times in a row, you just so happen to hit it right at a defender, and so you were out. I would still probably want that player who hits it really hard every time because I can extrapolate that over a sample. He's gonna hit it in good places like home runs <laughs> if he hits it really hard every time, and so now we can measure things like that, right? And so the game's really advanced that way. So, but the trajectory of baseball, certainly within kind of the organizations um, internally, you know, it starts out as individuals getting this data, creating, creating better representative metrics of what skill is. And that's, 
the, the inflection point for all sports is what is easy to measure versus what is meaningful to measure. And basketball has got some better examples we'll get into. But And when people start thinking about what's meaningful to measure, like RBIs are less meaningful based on that example we just gave, then they start saying, oh, well, you know, getting on base by being walked by the pitcher is of equal value to hitting the ball. Um, and so, because the guy still gets on first base, and, you know, that's a classic Moneyball example from the movie and the book, but... Um, that inflection point of individuals starting to examine the game like that. Now, what what happened in organizations was you'd have individuals, maybe they're like economists or PhD students or, or just however they got embedded in their organization in the early days. And they were kind of doing this, you know, not at scale, right? From a technology standpoint, it was one person can create one set of, you know, valuations and they can use those to inform decisions, um, you know, at a draft or at a free agency or from trading or roster construction or the things that front offices are in charge of doing. But as you naturally expand that to say, well, hey, we want to capture how fast the ball comes off the bat, which is a something that's come on in the last decade or so, I would say. Um, wow. Now think about all the things that you need to do that. You need hardware to do that. You need software to take the video and use a computer vision algorithm and turn it into data. You then need a way to calculate. You then need a way to, if it's a third party that you're contracting with to collect that data, you need to collect it systematically. Oh, by the way, that data is kind of meaningless without context. So you need it for all 30 stadiums. Um, and, and so as soon as you play these kind of extrapolations out from just let me take the, the box score um, for whatever sport you're talking about, it, it becomes much more of a technology thing. So you, you get into databases and data engineering, and then you start getting into, you know, how do you integrate it to your decision-making process, with, which gets you into soft, more traditional software engineering. So it's those, those data points that are meaningful. So it, it's, it's those teams, those people in the existing roles going, it'd be great if we could measure X. Let's go find out how we do that. And then that sets off a chain of events and, and builds out the team and all that kind of stuff. And then you have the more data you have, storage and all that other, all these other elements that technologists come into um, rather than just an analyst who is spoon-fed data that is has always been gathered or is um, you know by a third third-party provider, but might not be what they need. Yeah, it's you know, and that's where the 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 second spectrums and the optas of the world come from. And second spectrums the optical tracking provider of the NBA major league soccer and the premier league. And, um, Opta does very similar work in soccer and they're doing, I mean, Hawkeye and Trackman in baseball. And so the, I think really where it spawned from is whether it's the analyst or the general manager or the people inside the club saying, man, we really wish we could know this and whether those people go start companies, you know, to put the hardware in place to measure. There's lots of examples of executive, executives from sports teams themselves going off and starting some tech companies, or they are technologists who are very plugged into the space who start the tech companies. Um, you know, a couple have come out of Stanford. Um, I believe second spectrum came out of Stanford. So those are, are kind of, we start with the questions and like a lot of tech examples outside of sports, the evolution of hardware, better cameras, faster cameras, cheaper storage, Things like that, you know, better, better internet. I mean, 5G is, is one of those ones yep. that is 
still not meeting its potential, um, but ha- holds a lot of um, potential, not to use the word again, but potential for just some incredible stuff. I mean, being able to do edge computing, things like that, and, and all the optical tracking stuff you're talking about as well. Yeah, and when even, even you look at um, companies like Catapult and the um, wearables that you see the soccer players that, you know, the vest that you see them wearing underneath their shirt and the bump that's, in, you know, it's still a pretty large wearable and it's satellite powered. Um, you know, there's a movement in the MLS right now to move away from that towards total optical tracking, right? So now imagine your players don't have to wear those chips and those chips are not a function of, um, you know, if you're in a dome or if it's a cloudy day, so your satellite coverage isn't, you know, connect connectivity isn't as good. So the hardware has always been the key that's unlocked it. And then once those things happen, I mean, the minute that those things come into the market, whether it's just in for the team, some of this data is highly kind of gated to the teams, not really available to the public, but then you see just leaps and bounds of, you know, sort of innovation because there's, there's no shortage of smart mathematicians and data scientists who, once they get their hands on this can do really incredible things with it. You know, in, in soccer and in basketball now, we know position of every player on the floor and the ball 25 times a second and so you can only imagine the amount of things we can do with that in terms of asking things about like defense and positioning and um there's lots of there's further um kind of evolutions of that coming in terms of pose estimation and you know the angle of your arm and and things like that and so there's no shortage of people who can do really astounding things in terms of better understanding the sport um, but it's always been that hardware kind of a, is the key that unlocks that. And then you see just kind of a takeoff in terms of, you know, understanding, honestly, uh, of, of the game and w- whichever sport we're talking about, because now they can adopt that stuff kind of at large. So coming back to MLB, so, you know, 36 people at the Dodgers that are working across a range of these from your classic data scientist um, across different areas of technology and i'd also point out with the dodgers with their ownership group they have um elysium park ventures so probably the biggest if not one of the top three um sports technology investment funds uh in the world and some really interesting stuff that they're doing and kind of looking into the future so they have this innovation arm that is just feeding them you know what's happening in the future so that's a that's another thing off to the side but closely linked um so if that's at the gold star end, where are we at with other other leagues? I mean, your personal experience with the NBA and, and MLS and um, uh, I'm sure you know people in hockey as well in the NHL. So where are they sitting? And and if it's light years behind baseball, why is that? You know, it's, it's really interesting. So I don't know that I would use the term light years behind, but if you imagine kind of a... a exponential or an asymptotic kind of growth curve that baseball has gone on and i'm sitting here drawing my hand and like around yeah i was gonna say uh i can't even say the second word you said exponential i know but asymptotic asymptotic there you Um, go asymptotic so it goes it goes up and to the right yeah it goes up and to the right not in in a straight line in in, in a very non-linear fashion yeah um but you know if you imagine baseball's at the top of that while other sports are certainly behind I, i don't know that i would classify it as light years we're just earlier in the curve and the reason other sports are earlier in the curve goes back to the original point that the other sports are harder to quantify, are harder to count the things that happen. I mean, when we can distill all of this stuff we're talking about to counting. Right? It's really, really what we're doing at the end of the day. 
And if we take bo- basketball, the box score has always been the way we counted. Points, rebounds, assists, steals, turnovers, blocks. Now, to give a quick example of why this newer technology helps us better understand, um, and maybe we can link or something to a video clip that, that it's a good example of this, but a block is only registered uh, in a basketball game when the center, presumably, or the defensive player physically interacts with the ball in the, in the process of the shooter shooting a shot, and then they're credited with a block. But what is not captured, and what you could argue is even more beneficial, because um, a lot of times when you block it, it like goes out of bounds or it goes back to the other team. What might be even more beneficial is the defender playing such good defense that the player never has the option to shoot to begin with. And um, a great example of this is uh, Rudy Gobert, who now plays for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, of There's so many occasions when I was with Utah that you would see someone drive towards the hoop and then literally, like, while still dribbling the basketball, just veer off in another direction. Like, I don't want any of that smoke, right? And Rudy was the, the classic example. So we need ways to measure that and whether that's through optical tracking or through other ways of counting, like let's count every possession Rudy Gobert is on the floor and how often opponents score relative to all the times when he's not. That's at least, that's possession level and that's a whole other thing than the box score and it's, it takes a lot more manual effort to collect. So um, that's that's an example of why basketball is further behind baseball, I guess. But you know, to your point, I think that's why we're further behind. But... I've yet to hear a good argument for why we shouldn't get there. And I say we kind of meaning basketball um, in this case, if for no other reason that the total amount of money in those two leagues is roughly the same. So baseball's B, you can Google this, like baseball's BRI, baseball related income. So all the TV money, the merch, the ticket sales, you know, that total top tier number that then goes to all the teams and players and owners, like 10 to 11 billion, um, give or take. And, um, and basketballs this past year, and I forget the numbers in my tweet thread the other day, I think it was like $9 billion, um, give or take. And so the total amount of money we're playing for is like within 10 or 15% of each other. It's not 2x, 3x, 4x um, different. And so I don't have a great answer for if the economic payoff is the same, why would the upfront investment in anything that we think can give us an edge, right, whether that's hiring a better chef or hiring a better data scientist, why would that investment not be about the same? And so now I think in basketball, it has just taken more time to get to a place where we've accepted that while this sport is harder to measure, it's harder to understand. It's chaotic, right? There, there's, you know, interplay between the players and the positions on the, on the court in a way that there's just not in baseball. But I actually think that's a reason to invest more because there's more marginal gain, more, advantage to be had by doing that as opposed to um you know a sport where it's like easy easier to count easier to measure so i i do think and it's a bit of a prognostication but i do think that over the next five years and if you keep a tab on like who gets hired into nba teams and the types of job postings and the stuff that kind of people in my network talk about a lot you're starting to see this like just as an example the atlanta hawks right now are hiring a full-stack software developer. Five years ago, I don't think a single NBA team over the course of a season was hiring for a full-stack software developer. And we don't want you to build models or predictions or algorithms. We want you to help us build a system. 
And this is what baseball has done so well. And this is what I think Moneyball, whether you want to call it 2.0 or 3.0 is, is taking that information, those, you know, sometimes they're models, sometimes they're statistics, sometimes they're just scouting reports. It's all, we, we've got to stop thinking about analytics and scouting and, you know, player development and health and all the, all the information we have about players in our sport. They're all just pieces of information. Some are produced by, you know, algorithms in Python and some are produced by scouts watching games. They all have a place in our decision-making process. And so developing the system to empower your decision makers to have that in their decision-making process, that's where they're still, certainly in basketball, certainly in American soccer, certainly in American football, all, there's so much of an opportunity to, to bring all of that to the forefront. You know, um, a really good example, and a lot of teams you can go like look at their, um, you know, their front office staffs on their team websites and stuff. You know, the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, whose general manager is a guy named Sam Presti, who's um, I think got his first general manager job when he was 29 years old. So he's a bit of a prodigy from the Spurs lineage. But I mean, the, their their front office reads like a startup way more than it does like a. Um, you know, a basketball team. It's not scout, scout, trainer, trainer. It's, you know, high performance technologist. It's, and I'm making these up, but it's, you know, software engineers, data engineers, web developers, designers, you know, people like that who are helping create a system so that, you know, if you, if you back it out to a decision-making standpoint and say, okay, if I'm going to draft a player or trade for a player or, decide to, you know, play differently in a coaching context. What are all the things I would like to know carte blanche to make that decision? And if you ask a basketball or any sports executive to write down that list, some of them are, are questions that are answered with data. Certainly some of them are, are, are not questions that are answered with data, you know, in terms of models, but they're pieces of information that need to be coalesced into a singular place so that we can answer them. And so, that's the difference that baseball does really well right now. And I think every other sport, frankly, in the world probably does not do that at a scale that baseball does yet. I think it's something that um, the influx of private equity money into a lot of these leagues, obviously the NBA opened up um, the ability for private equity to use investment vehicles to, to get minority team ownership. Um, you mentioned uh, US-backed. Um, PE going into European soccer and buying up teams and several teams. And the idea with that is if you talk to a lot of these um, these investors, it's not just, hey, this is a great brand or whatever. And we're just going to, you know, it's just a lifestyle investment. You go, no, we can get multiple clubs within um, within Europe and then work on a system where we acquire players and we train them in our style of football or whatever that is. We get returns. We can apply private equity, um, I guess, uh, methods to what you would do with an asset. You come in, you you invest in the asset, you improve it, you add better processes, all that, and then you can sell on players. You can improve the performance of the team. It goes up um, in terms of uh, of going being promoted. That's the, they say it's the richest uh, game in the world. The promotion from the championship um, up to the Premier League, like in terms of that one match. Um, so if you can invest in a team that's maybe at a lower level and goes up, or if you can just turn your team into a farm that the 
the big existing European players um, want to buy from, uh, then then that's something that that can be improved there. So it, it'll remain to see if that actually happens, but at least you have people that are very used to this, like the Mets, for instance, um, and understanding, well, this is that. And that's another point with Elysium Park Ventures um, is that they've taken a lot of people from other... Um, I'm blanking on the one right now, but it's um, Todd Bowley's other um, investment fund. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting the classic investment banker, um, private equity person out of New York and chucking him into Los Angeles and telling him to go nuts. Yeah, and, you know, you start talking about world world football, world soccer, and that's an, it's, it's so much more interesting of a case study from this you know, application of technology because of the scale and the market that exists there, right? And um, I, I had this conversation with a friend recently and having worked in the MLS, unfortunately in the MLS and American soccer right now, there's not a ton of economic incentive for an owner to say, let me pour $100 million into my operations. So all of this stuff falling, whether it's analytics or how good your training facility is or how good your academy facility is or how good your chef is and how pretty your locker room is and you know, the fitness of, of equipment and staff available for the players. Because if they put $100 million into that they're, and you win CONCACAF Champions League, I think you win CONCACAF Champions League, at least last time I looked at it, your team got $500,000, right? I don't know what you get if you win UEFA Champions League, but it's a few, there's a few more zeros on there. Um, and so, unfortunately, in, in, in the U.S., outside of the, the, th- the three or four major sports and hockey kind of straddling that line, there's not an economic incentive to do this. But in soccer, there's like multiple compounding economic incentives like you just alluded to. There's actually winning games and the revenue you're going to make from that. There's promotion if you're a lower division club and there's some good anecdotes we can go into. Um, and there's the sell-on of players. And the sell-on of players is like the only way that the ML, it's like the only way to get a five-figure payday, not a five-figure, a eight or nine figure payday, eight figure payday from uh, an MLS club right now because you win, you know, we saw the new Apple uh, TV deal jump 3X to $250 million. I mean, the entire MLS TV deal before that new Apple deal was, uh, the old ESPN deal was like Steph Curry's salary. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And then you you just look at the scale. I mean, uh, UEFA Champions League, it's $22.69 million for in terms of pure prize money. But then you talk about, well, what are you going to get through everything else that comes with that? You know, your uptick in season tickets, jersey sales, um, being able to sell out, um, hospitality. Your corporate partnerships, yeah, right corporate from sponsors, that. all that kind of stuff that it um, it compounds uh, again and again beyond that. So, and that's something that's interesting with, um, with American soccer is probably a double-edged sword is because there isn't promotion relegation, but uh, that's something that at least American sports leagues want is to not have that risk essentially is that you know that if you buy an asset in terms of an, an MLS team, it's not going to go down. But then that'll be something to see in the future how they actually look at, well, how do we grow this? And probably for, for mine, smarter than you or I in terms of um, that broad tr- strategic direction for, for the league. But coming back to the this evolution, like where is it going then? Like what is what is the next step? Is it is it going to go through another leap when you get to the point that every team looks like the Dodgers, like where are the Dodgers going to be then? Sure. No, I think it's a, it's a really good thing to try to think about. Um, 
certainly in the NBA, I think the the next two places that technology is gonna gonna really take hold, um, and baseball's already done some of this, but um, player development and um, as well as kind of player uh, player readiness. So player development, I mean like skill development, right? So making people better shooters, making them better at pick and roll. Um, using another basketball example, training the pick and roll is really hard. You basically need all ten players. You, you like you need at least six players to train pick and roll. Um, and, and the dynamics of the sport are just such that you can't train it one-on-one. So if I've got a young rookie center on my team who I need to train him how to play pick and roll defense, because if he's not good at that, he's going to get exploited and run off the floor. How do I do that? Because if I like, if I have Steph Curry on my team, I am not going to have Steph Curry spending his time helping the rookie center train defensive pick and roll, right? Steph Curry basically gets to do what he wants to uh, at this point anyways of his career but that's not what i'm going to spend like individual development time in practice doing so and then sure you've got assistant coaches and trainers and, and people like that out, out there helping but how do you train that at game speed and the kind of the awareness and the the vision and the understanding of what's happening so there's things like vr that are um you know technological advancements that aren't certainly are not analytics but can we use that baseball's done it with reading pitches um you know soccer's done it with um i think defend you know peak you know defending pks and, and some of those things um and the pick and roll may not be a perfect analogy for it but starting to think about stuff like that and say well how can i do this in such a way to help my player train which oh by the way if you're training vr now you can train on a on an airplane when you're flying to your game in chicago and your player's not getting wear and tear on their body Right, which is something that the the high performance specialists are all really concerned with, because every minute of extra training is, you know, a minute off the end of their career type of and, thing. And every league in the effort to uh, make more money is adding extra games and trying to find ways that they can, yeah, get more product out there. So, so, um, so skill development's I think one thing. Again, baseball does that has already done this pretty well because their examples are so acute. You know, you can basically in baseball quantify how much money it's worth for a pitcher's breaking ball to break another inch or two because you know it's X more strikeouts, which is Y more wins and Z more money, right? In basketball, we haven't, you know, at least nobody I've run into is, is doing the mental calculus yet of, well, if I can get this player from a 75 to an 80% free throw shooter, here's how many more marginal wins that is in a season. And a win in the NBA is worth about $3 million take the total amount of money spent on the players, the salary cap divided by the total number of available wins. It's about $3 million. So how many marginal wins is that worth? You know, when you start thinking about things in those terms, you can do that with every sport, but you start thinking about things in those terms and then you can really start trying to prioritize some of your player development things. So um, in basketball, a really good example is uh, um, shooting, right? That's obviously the, the most clear example too. And, it's amazing to me that every NBA team, this, this technology exists. The company's Noah. John Carter is great CEO of Noah. He's um, someone I've worked with a bunch. And it, they can track every shot in the gym with computer vision. They can attribute it to the player. They can know exactly where they were on the court, how many dribbles they took beforehand. You know, They've got slow motion or high-speed video of the player taking the shot. They know the angle it enters the hoop. They know exactly kind of was it two inches to the right, two inches deep, two inches short, you know, all these things. And yet, like, 
maybe half the NBA teams, give or take, have that technology embedded in their training facility every day. And this stuff doesn't cost a million dollars either, you know? And again, we've already talked about the economic incentives are there anyways, but now take that, having that information and having the, the hardware to be able to capture that, whether again, it's through a vendor in this case, but that is like the, the bare minimum. Now take all that information and use it in your decision-making process, right? And that's where, and apply that to like every piece of player development. And so you can, you can use that in lots of different ways and lots of different applications and across lots of different sports. Um, but it's just a really good example of something that is so plainly obvious that, you know, in basketball, in soccer, you know, there's equivalence, uh, equivalence of that in soccer, um, that, you know, teams just aren't doing that. And that's, those are exploitable edges, you know, 80, 20 rule. We're, we're making our money on the edges here on the marginal gains. And there's, there's just so many examples of that. Well, there's one company I want to give a shout out to. Um, I mean, Noah and basketball is a great example, but, uh, and this is less on the, on the data tracking side, but more on the player development skill side is a company called Monarch. So, uh, it's, uh, basically it looks like if you've seen Terminator two or one, like the, like one that's on the tank treads, like yeah. that, like the Terminator, except it shoots footballs. So in, for those not familiar with NFL, um, American football, uh, you have a thing called a jugs machine and basically that puts a single ball in there. It's two spinning wheels and it just fires a ball out. It's incredibly inaccurate. It is very slow to reload and it needs someone to be manually operating. So they've basically, uh, built this product called the seeker, which is a, um, an automated, um, football dispensing machine you can put a tracking unit on the wide receiver or whoever is going and it will pinpoint them you can run set plays it's all you know programmable all that kind of stuff and then afterwards i think you can input the information about well was the pass caught was it dropped all that kind of stuff so it's one of those things that they're they're a they're a startup they're getting out there they're trying to do that during covid they had a lot of um nfl athletes uh buy units because they couldn't train essentially so if you want to train at home how do you get your reps in but something like that where you can go well this is a really clear win for technology but you have this legacy um tech of this jugs machine that's from the 80s might even be the 70s i don't even know how old that is like that is just such a a dumb piece of equipment and it's in every single um football facility across the u.s and you go well why isn't everyone jumping on this yeah it's it's interesting especially at the, the NFL level, right? Where, you know, extend that analogy a little further and I'm not as familiar with the NFL, but imagine that there was some signal in terms of future, predicting future performance of the receiver from their performance on the Monarch system with the, you know, we can basically fix the input in terms of the difficulty for the catch and some of these things, right? And we, we get an output in terms of whether or not the receiver was successful. And so now imagine you're at a training camp and you've got 20 receivers that you have to get down to like eight or six, right? And you've got, sure, you know, everyone knows who their top receiver or two is, but finding a serviceable receiver on a rookie minimum who can all of a sudden play and give you lots of like quality minutes or snaps um, in terms of production is huge for an NFL general manager. Like that is the key to roster construction right there, right? Is, is finding players with positive expected value in terms of production on the field relative to their salary. Cause we can all, we can all go sign the best receiver in the 
in the league, but we can't sign five of them, right? And your third, fourth, fifth receiver has got to be productive. And if you can do that on a, a player on a rookie minimum or on a, a veteran minimum, then that money can now be allocated elsewhere to your team, right? And you can build your team more successfully and more, maybe more important, more sustainably when you do that. I mean, certainly in basketball, you can see teams that are the flash in the pan successes versus the sustainable ones. And that's how they do that, right? By having basically thinking about it from an expected value proposition in terms of what's the player producing for me in terms of wins versus how much am I paying for that? And how you, to take the baseball analogy, how you reducing those data points into something that is, uh, is the same, is, is, you know, you are measuring like for like in the sense of something like a monarch, it can run the same play and put the ball with pinpoint accuracy in every single one. Obviously, your quarterback might be doing that, but your second, third string, fourth string, whoever it is that's throwing the ball to these receivers probably isn't as accurate. And maybe after they do it 100 times, if they're trying to do it, they're going to slow down, they're going to do that. And you go, well, this machine just be able, makes you be able to churn through and have the, the, the faith that the data is actually telling you something accurate across the board so i think i mean things like that but that's that's also um that's for me it just kind of boggles my mind that they don't jump on this um and see that but i also think it's one of those things that once it reaches a critical mass it will become the jugs machine like that's where we're moving in terms of the jugs machine was new technology at one point like these two spinning wheels that fires a ball amazing because what happened before that it was literally someone throwing so now you had that and that was a technology innovation and I'm sure it was probably a similar thing in terms of how that tech's ad- adopted. I'm just really interested to know how fast that's going to be. Yeah, I mean, all, all sports, you know, these are these are closed economies and small markets, right? There's 28 in MLS to 30, you know, two teams in North American professional sports in each respective league. So they're they're all copycat leagues, right? Like. Quinn Snyder comes into the NBA and brings something called the Spain pick and roll, which is a screen the screen or a very popular play in Europe in about a decade ago. Now everybody does it, right? It's a type of play. That's just pure basketball. It doesn't have to do with tech, but same thing. Like people start putting sensors on pitchers and then those pitchers get better. Teams start doing that. Players change teams, staffs change teams. They bring this technology with them. It does have, it does have a similar growth curve right so so but how do we speed that curve up so talking from your own experience understanding the industry understanding people that are actually in there and i mean in my in my role i talk to a lot of startups and um companies that are trying on the outside looking in and saying hey i've got this solution you know you're crazy not to use it but within the teams it's a very different mentality and dynamic so how do we speed this up you know it's a it's a really good question thomas because it's it's the answer, and I talk to people all the time now and kind of through this kind of consultative role of people trying to sell into teams. And, and I think the, the hard thing to, or the, the, the difficult thing to do if you've never been on the team side is just the absolute constraints on like time and energy, not necessarily on money. I mean, by and large, major North American sports teams, certainly there's money's not unlimited, but it's, it's pretty free flowing, right? Would they say the Cowboys were worth the other day? Like, nine billion or something like that yeah Um, i mean yeah just something else and yeah so apparently recession proof so so. money's never you know let's for for argument's sake money's not the issue right but it's you know i've certainly brought technology into teams before and and they were you know vendors that i knew and i built relationships with and trusted because 
really what's happening is as you know an analyst at a team or the the head of um a net head of analytics at a sports team you know i'm a little bit putting my bum on the line if i say hey we need to go spend 50k 100k on this because it's going to help us be better um and by the way you're getting pitch stuff all the time i mean you go to nba summer league there's an entire summit where it's like you're walking around a tech expo and there's two dozen folks in the space and no doubt that everybody's working hard to move the space forward but what's really interesting about you know if i was advising someone who wanted to like start a sports tech company i don't know that i would advise them to try it might be like find something that's going to like sell to high schools right you know the market's so much bigger and 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 some of those things just at every sport and every team in their front office dynamics like again the oklahoma city thunder and the Philadelphia 76ers with with um, the Harris Blitzer group and the Dodgers obviously with uh, with with their ownership are on the bleeding edge of this stuff but they're more the exception than they are the rule right I mean they're for every Dodgers there's another team with like five you know analytic staffers and which is small by baseballs um, by baseball's measurements and so um, it's just at, at the at the tip of the spear is that because there's just there's not a lot of surface area there it's being really responsive i think to kind of the the individuals and the dynamics at play in those organizations um because there are lots of examples of executives who um i've got a good friend um tony g Vicchini, and he has his, his proprioception company delos and he's in with like three quarters of the nba if not the entire nba but it all started with one general manager who saw it, understood it. It was a technology that came from Italy, and this guy played basketball, pro basketball in Italy, brought it to the NBA. And just anecdotally, one general manager saw it, attached to it, and then visiting players would see it or use it when they came to the facility, or that general manager would mention it, or someone leaves that team and goes on to be a general manager of another team, and they, they like it, right? And there becomes this kind of, it, it's not... You know, you don't double overnight or you don't, you know, saturate a league with a certain technology over the course of a year, but you do do it kind of through that groundswell of kind of support by, by, you know, I think this guy had success because he was a former professional basketball player. He played basketball at Stanford. He knew the VC kind of industry really well. And um, he understood how to work with players and how to work with teams. I've worked with other vendors who have come into our facility and like, tried to tell us they want time with the players to work on their shot. And I, you know, I'm just laughing at these guys and like, not to sound rude, but like that person clearly has no idea of how a basketball team and NBA team operates in that case. Right. And so that's probably the, the hardest thing. If you're, you know, this intersection of sports and technology, this is why it's so interesting because you, certainly some of the market is the professional teams. There, there's all, all, also lots of other commercial stuff going on out there as well. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about, and it's probably for another time the the intersection of like the high performance and the sporting side of it, cause they're, they're both so tech heavy, but they're kind of still in separate silos. But, um, that's probably the biggest thing is understanding those dynamics and, um, really spending time to understand people's processes. And cause what you can't do is like come in the middle of the season and tell a, a strength coach or tell a scout that they've got to change the way they work because you paid a hundred grand for this new technology. Right. It's got to be the other way around. So, Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking about ownership a, a little bit there that a lot of these teams are run like small family businesses or small to medium-sized family businesses in terms of the dynamics of it and a lot of decisions are made at the top 
when you it's not going in and selling to a I don't know a big media company or a a mining company or a whatever insert huge you know a, a fast moving uh, consumer goods company you know that has these layers of um, of decision making a lot of the stuff will just ownership needs to sign off on it or at least someone who has that delegation but right at the top it's it's very interesting in terms of technology sales and technology buying and um, and then you look at colleges and they have similar complexities where a lot of new technology needs to go through the IT onboarding or IT processes for the whole university so in the same way that if you would you know want to put in a new I don't know virusware software um, or cybersecurity solution into the university um, you're going through the same same process as a sports technology company as well to work with the athletics department. So there's there's all these complexities that people sometimes don't appreciate and understand. I think um, I think talking to people uh, in a constructive way and developing those relationships with people that are actually on the inside is good. And and I mean that seriously before selling them. Like you actually need to understand what's going on there before you just go in with a with a hard sales pitch. Yeah, these these industries, I mean, even cross sport are are so small and everybody knows everybody, you know, even not just the NBA or the MLS or the MLB, but you know, everyone's got their conferences and their events and their combines that they go to and um if you're someone that people want to work with, it, it'll become pretty clearly apparent. If you're someone people don't want to work with, it'll become pretty clearly apparent pretty quickly as well. And so, you know, I think every uh, you know, technology provider that I worked with across two sports was someone that I had, you know, not existing relationships like I knew them ahead of time, but that we built that relationship over time and understood the product and understood, you know, how we were operating internally. Um, And those people can be great resources too, because they often have great pulse on what the league is doing. Like a lot of the conversation we've been having today, because they do work with 20 teams, you know, out of 30 and they do know what, you know, they've got a really good understanding for like who is savvy and who's kind of tech forward and who's not right. Um, and that, that in and of itself can be valuable information as well. And so um, th- that's always been my experience that the people who understand that stats bombs, another really good example, you know, they're, they're in soccer and now they're getting into American football as well. Um, where, you know, Ted and his group just have a good understanding of, because Ted used to be at Brentford. And so he's, you know, knows what it's like to be at a soccer club, knows all those constraints. You know, you cannot just come in the door barging with like, my model says we should buy this player. Um, cause that's just not, that's not how it works. Right. Um, but what you can do is you can integrate that model into a holistic decision-making system and then, you know, you can really lever that up over time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, probably a great, uh, final point to end on there is, is that your technology may be great, but, but it's probably not a silver bullet. I'm going to say definitely not a silver bullet. And that's the other thing is that you need to understand what problem you're solving for and where you're sitting in, in terms of everything else that the team or the league is doing. Um, because yeah, that can be um, trying to over over promise and say it's going to do all these things that that doesn't end well. Yeah, you know, I think and I think to echo that and the final point I would make is that again, this is what Moneyball 2.0 and 3.0 looks like. It's you know these decision makers, whether you're talking about soccer or baseball or, or basketball, they're basically making like three decisions a year. Like obviously they're making many more micro decisions along the way, but they're basically who do we draft? Who do we sign in free agency or buy in transfer market? Um, and who do we trade, you know, in American sport? And that's, and who do we hire as our coach maybe? And then coaches have a million touch points obviously throughout. But 
uh, and that you're hopefully you're only hiring a new coach once every decade or so. And so when those are the only decision points, you know, juxtaposing with other industries like you did where, you know, someone who's a stock trader might trade 20 times a day. Right. Um, when, when you only have so many, so few decision points, it all comes back to your process and the process has such an opportunity to be augmented by technology. Right. You know, I use the example in basketball. If, if one of our scouts is off seeing a, sitting in a gym in Slovenia and there's a player that starts, he just, maybe it's not the player he was there to see, but he starts playing well in the game. And he's like, Oh, that player's interesting. I wonder what do we know about that player? He should be able to access that on that phone and get every relevant piece of information that our organization through data, through previous scouting reports, through information we've learned along the way about that player, maybe about their background or their character or, you know, down to their shot chart in their on off numbers that should all be accessible to that scout on demand, how that scout in a way to empower that scout to work better. Right. The scout may, may be quickly able to say, Oh wow. We, nobody's really heard of this guy, but our stuff really likes him or, Oh, he's having a really good game, but you know, traditionally he's not been great. And those two things, the same, you're sitting in the same gym watching the same thing happen, but it can really inform kind of your decision-making process. Right. And so it, when we say holistic technology, right? Uh, things I'm talking about are data engineering, front end development, obviously the data science and the kind of the sexy part of it um, that has been Moneyball for so long is still a key part of it, but there's just so much more to wrap it around. And I think the organizations that latch onto that quickest because this stuff takes time, you can't, you can't buy this. You generally have to build it yourself. Um, the organizations that latch onto that, you know, cert, I mean, yes, the Yankees and Dodgers have uh, some of the largest payrolls, um, but there's there's lots of teams with good payrolls who have not had success too, you know, and yep. and, and 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 that is what begets kind of a culture of consistency and consistent success. You know, you look at the San Antonio Spurs, you um, you know, you look at the Philadelphia 76ers, like you look at some of these teams, the Utah Jazz for a long time. Um, still have one of the best uh, winning records over the last decade. Um, and they have that foundational process in place and technology plays a huge part in that foundational process. So it's, it's, it's a tool. It's not, it's not technology for technology's sake, but it's, it's a tool to really, you know, drive your organization forward and, and help you make the best decision when you've got to get those because you have so many, so few decisions, you got to get them right. Yep. Great way to put it. And, uh, before we let you go, final question. What is your favorite sporting moment of all time? Oh, boy. Favorite of all time. Um, you know, the one, I'm, the one that I'm just going to answer the one that immediately popped to mind, you know, without uh, going through a mental Rolodex. But um, I took my father for his retirement gift to the 2017 Open at Royal Burkdale, uh, which Jordan Spieth won. And uh, we happened to be sitting in the grandstand. I believe it's, I cannot remember if it's 15 green or 16 green. I think it's 16 green. Um, and golf is a huge part of my father and I's relationship and a huge part of our life still. Um, so it was very special to be there to begin with. But we're sitting in the grandstand behind, I believe, 16 green when Jordan Spieth drove the ball over to the driving range, uh, then knocked his second shot on and made about a 50 or 60 footer for Eagle and had the famous point at his caddy, Jordan Greller, go get that. 
Um, so to be there physically in person to see kind of a, one of the most iconic golf moments of the last few decades uh, with my dad on his retirement trip, certainly, uh, certainly up there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Corey. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and people can follow you on Twitter at Corey Jez um, and we'll also put your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can uh, stay in touch and, and reach out if, they, if they're a team that are uh, needing some help out there or, or a technologist that um, also needs help. So uh, thank you again and great to have you on Sports Tech Feed. Yeah, thanks so much, Thomas. 